like for you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 as we continue our series on Moses. Last week we covered these verses and I will not be able to go over those points that we learned last week again, but you are able to get a copy of that sermon if you want at the desk on the north side of the atrium. Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, <clears throat> Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Last week we asked some questions. Can a man really change God's mind? Does God change his mind? And then we looked at God's anger. Does God have anger? If so, what is it? Why is it? What does it say about God? Is it possible for us to make God mad? How can he have an attribute that Jesus condemned in the Sermon on the Mount when he spoke about being angry with your brother? Raises questions. Can God change his mind? Or excuse me, can a man change God's mind? Does God change? The answer to that is no, he does not change. The very declarative statement regarding who he is, who his person is, what to call him is I am. That means he is. He does not change. He has been who he is. He is now who he was. And he will always be who he is. I am. So we dealt with that, and of course we dealt with the story, and we learned what I believe to be the meaning of the story. But this story still has questions that need to be addressed and they need to be answered, and that is regarding the wrath of God. Now the wrath of God is a very difficult subject to deal with in one sermon. In fact, we cannot deal with it in one sermon. 
It will require a number of sermons. I know the end of the study. I don't know all the steps to get there. So we are going to be talking about the wrath of God for a while. There are many people who talk about the wrath of God. It's impossible to avoid it when you read the scriptures. It is mentioned so many times. So people have ratcheted up what the wrath of God is to the point of describing an angry being who is just waiting for human beings to do something so he can punish them. All the way to a being who has just, he's so dismissive and passive that, that nothing happens. Even the scenes of judgment given in the word of God are just kind of waxed over as being, well, that's the passive righteous judgment of God. It, it was brought on by the people themselves. So we need to study all of this, and we need to put it into perspective. You may be asking, why? Why do we need to study about the wrath of God? We will never understand the mercy of God, nor the gift of salvation in Christ, till we understand the wrath of God. Now, we are going to take this large meal, we are going to eat all of it, but we're going to do it a bite at a time, and we are going to chew well 32 times before we swallow. So it's going to take us a while. Every sermon will have a beginning and an end, but every sermon cannot answer all of your questions regarding the wrath of God. In fact, some of these presentations may create a question or two. So I'm inviting you to contact the church office with your questions. I will seek to answer those questions in the process of this series. Also, you may get some questions answered. And if you do, I would like to hear about that too because you know what? We're all on this journey together. And it's encouraging. And let's encourage one another on this journey. Now, the source of our study will be the Word of God. It will not be the philosophies and suppositions of man. We are going to stay in the Word of God, the Word of God. Where the Word of God speaks, we will speak. Where the Word of God is silent, we will be silent. So we will take what God has declared to us through his holy word and we will use that as the backdrop to form our opinions regarding the wrath of God. As we begin our study, let me give you just a little definition here. It's clear God's anger is mentioned in scripture. But God's anger is absolutely pure. It is uncontaminated by the elements of human anger. Human anger is usually arbitrary and uninhibited. Divine anger is always principled and controlled. Human anger tends to be spasmodic outbursts aroused by resentment or irritation and it seeks revenge. God's anger is free from personal animosity or vindictiveness. Today, we're going to begin a study about the wrath of God 
by the process of learning about the holiness of God. When we can begin to understand the holiness of God and then we begin to see the repulsive nature of sin to a holy God, then his response to this repulsiveness of sin will make more sense. We are going to look at this through five metaphors that are given to us in the scriptures. Today, we will only be able to take on two of those metaphors. The first metaphor will be height. The second metaphor will be distance. The third metaphor will be light. The fourth will be fire. And the last one will be vomiting. So if you want to do some research on those, get ahead of me, that'd be great. Today, let's begin our study about God's wrath by looking at the metaphor of God's holiness as described by height. Height. Please turn to Genesis 14. 1,800 years before Christ, there was a man named Abram. And he had been spoken to by God. Promises had been given to him. And Abram becomes a key player in the Bible and in the Bible story. He had a nephew named Lot. And Lot lived in a town called Sodom. And while Lot lived there, five kings came down, raided the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities in the plain, took, took Lot and all the people captive. Abram was told about it, and he gathered his servants and some other folks that he was in league with. They attacked those five kings. They released everybody, and on their way back home, they ran into a gentleman identified as Melchizedek, king of Salem. Let's read what happens. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Do you see how God is identified here? God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. God is high and possesses heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands hand. We see 1,800 years before Christ, the biblical Hebraic expression in referring to God is God most high. Height. Let's go 800 years forward in the Bible to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm 7. This is written by David 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Psalm 7, verse 17, we read this. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. 800 years later, the biblical Hebraic expression regarding God, the Lord Most High. Height. Height. Let's go to Psalm 97, verse 9. Psalm 97, verse 9. 
For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. The Lord is high, and he is high above all the earth, and he is exalted far above all the gods of this earth. So we see 1,800 years before Christ, 1,000 years before Christ, God is identified. And in that identity is this loftiness, this holiness described by height, greater than the earth, as high as the heavens, higher than any of the small g gods that someone can invent. What would be the expression of someone who was confronted by a miracle and the obvious evidence that God was in that miracle? And we're going to look at that expression in just a moment. It will be the expression of a man who does not believe in God like we believe in God. It's the expression of a man who is a heathen, who has all kinds of gods besides the true God. In fact, the story begins in chapter 1, and you get the impression this man believes he is God. But through a series of, of actions that take place, an irrefutable evidence of the divine nature of what took place before this man's eyes, he will make a declaration. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3. Here we are 600 years before Christ in Daniel chapter 3. A heathen king tried to force Hebrews to bow down and worship a golden image that he had created. Three of them are named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow down. They are cast into a fiery furnace, it's called. And the king named Nebuchadnezzar looks in there. He sees four in there and one like the Son of God. In Daniel 3 verse 26, we read this. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And it says that they came out from the midst of the fire. God's lofty exaltation expresses both his sovereignty over the world, everything in the world. He is above false gods, and it expresses also the undeniable reality that he is inaccessible by sinners. We can't get to him. He is high. He is holy. He is up there. We can't get to him. And you're thinking, well, but that's not what the New Testament teaches. Well, yes, you're right. And yes, there's more to it. And so we will seek to bring balance to everything that we teach here. God's holiness in the metaphor of height, continues, though, in the New Testament, even though we find a way to bridge that gap. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we are going to read verse 16. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a beautiful declaration. Coming boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in a time of need. There is a picture here of an appeal made, go to that throne, go to the heights where God is. But how is that done? It's called grace. And what is grace? Grace is a gift. God, we will see, through Christ, has given a way for us to go to that throne, to go from here to there. Let's look at it in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, beautiful picture written after the book of Hebrews, written by the apostle John when he was in a vision. It says, after these things, in verse 1, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. What direction was John told to go? Come up here. Even in the New Testament, that throne is high. It is exalted. It is lifted up. Now let's go to Acts chapter 7, verses 48 and 49. For some of you, your fingers are going to feel like they're in a marathon. But I believe the Word of God is the only route. It's the way to go. And so we're going to let the Scripture speak to us today. Acts chapter 7 Verses 48 and 49. Stephen is preaching, and this is what he says, verse 48. Heaven, describing God, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Heaven, oh, excuse me, I forgot to read verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? God's throne is a throne of grace, but it is still high. It is still exalted, and he himself is the high and lofty one who does not dwell in man-made temples. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. God is holy. God is holy. Let's go to another passage. We will find it in Psalm 91, verse 1. Psalm 91, verse 1. How are we to relate to this lofty stature of God? How can he help us? How is it that he can be so high up there and still know the hairs on our head? Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. This is a beautiful poetic expression of saying, Look, God who dwells on high, He will be a protector 
for those who walk with him, for those who serve him. He will protect them. In, in a beautiful metaphor, Jesus told or described a chicken gathering the, chick, the baby chicks under her wings to cover, to shadow them. And he says, I would have done this for you, but you refused. So even though God is holy, he is high, he is lifted up, there is a shadow that we can find strength and comfort in. He does offer that to us. Look at Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Contrite and humble spirit is describing somebody who has bowed down to the Lord, who has confessed their sins, who is calling upon him for help. And he says that he dwells with that person to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. There is a way to that holy God. And it is a way that comes to us through grace. And those who receive that grace will be humble people whom God will watch over, he'll protect, and he will allow to come into his holy presence. But what about the proud? Look at Psalm 138, verse 6. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Pride, being proud, can't get near holiness. Not gonna happen. He knows the proud sinners from afar. And that transitions us to distance. Distance. Please turn to Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Moses is walking on the backside of the desert near Mount Horeb. And he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It is a curious thing, and he turns aside to look at it. We come to verse 5. Then he said, that's God speaking to Moses, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses saw this curious thing of the bush, and as he came closer to it, when he got to a certain point, God said, stop, no more. This is holy here. You take off your sandals. And when Moses realized who it was and what was happening, he bowed his face. He refused to look upon a holy God. You see, holiness and sinful man can't be together. There's distance Sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. 
cannot. There is distance. We see that described for us in Joshua chapter 3. In Joshua chapter 3, here's the background. Moses has died. Joshua is the declared leader of the Israelites. He is the one who's going to take them across the Jordan River. He's the one who's going to take them to their first battle. They will circle the city of Jericho every day for seven days. On that seventh day, they will circle seven times. Then they're going to shout, the walls are going to fall down, and they will have their first victory in the promised land. But before all that takes place, God gives instruction to Joshua. And these instructions are very helpful for us to understand about the holiness of God. Let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. So here they're being instructed through their leaders. They go through the camp. And they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Well, what is this ark of the covenant? Years before this story took place, at Mount Sinai, Moses was instructed by God how to teach the people to approach a holy God. And there was a tabernacle that was made. It's called a tent. Tabernacle means tent. From that model, they would build a temple years later. It was a portable temple. And it had an outer court which the people couldn't get into. Only the priests could go there, and they would there make the sacrifices. Then it had an inner court divided into two rooms, a holy place, and the priests would go there and apply the blood. Then a most holy place. No one was allowed in there except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. This was all teaching the process of how to approach a holy God. The centerpiece of furniture in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. It represented God's throne, and it represented what was holy about God. And there was distance between them, or between that Ark and the people. Now watch what happens. The people were instructed, when you see the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priests, and by the way, they never touched it. It had rings on it, and they would put wooden rods through it and carry it on their shoulders. When you see that thing moving and the priest following, then you're going to go after it. Yet, verse 4, there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. That's 3,000 feet. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. There will be distance. This thing represents God. It represents his throne. There's going to be 3,000 feet before the first person can, can, can be near it. Distance. You may find that this helps explain the answer to the question why years later when that ark was on a cart being driven by oxen and it began to rock and a man named Uzzah reached up, touched it to stabilize it died like that, distance. 
distance. God is holy. Look at Matthew 25, verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. When Jesus is describing the destruction of the wicked, these are some of the expressions he uses. He says, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They're sinful. They can't be with God. There'll be a distance. They're cast into fire and destroyed. Distance. Distance describes the holiness of God. The experience of the wicked is contrasted in the book of Revelation by the experience of those who have accepted salvation. Please turn there in Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And it goes on to describe that God himself will personally wipe the tears off of the faces of everyone who is there. Distance, no longer, in the presence of a holy God for eternity. Now, this morning, we have looked at God's holiness from two expressions in Scripture, height and distance. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at light, fire, and vomiting next week. And these five metaphors illustrate the utter incompatibility of divine holiness with human sin. Simply put, God is holy and he will not be in the presence of sin. And if sin approaches him, sin will be consumed. Modern man wants to portray God as easygoing, understanding, and tolerant of sin. We want God to be gentle, kind, and accommodating. We don't want him to have wrath. And could it be that our low concept of God is driven by our low concept of sin? Could it be that because sin doesn't appear so bad, and at least in our own lives, our sin is explainable, could it be that we assume God doesn't see it so bad either? But I want you to understand, it is only as we see the holiness of God and understand his wrath against sin that we can begin to understand his mercy and the forgiveness given us through Christ. One thing we, we must note, whatever God's wrath is against sin, he's made a way 
that none of us should ever experience it. I'd like for you to turn to John chapter three. John chapter three. This month of January has been very emotional for me. It was 40 years ago in January that I read the Bible for the first time. I was 20 years old. And it was 40 years ago in January that I discovered in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. And 40 years of reading the Bible and growing in my understanding, I, I'm beginning to see just now what Jesus experienced to save us was far, far worse than anything I've imagined to this point in my life. And my hope is that as we go through this study on the wrath of God, it will be for you a turning point, a milestone where you look back and say, you know, I began to love Jesus more during that series than any time in my life. Whatever this awful judgment against sin is, God took care of it for us. We don't ever have to experience it. How did he do it? Read with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. In Christ alone, our help is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. I invite you to stand as we sing that together.